speaker presenter Lyle Southwell presenting the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in his live series called The Prophetic Code. You'll be amazed as he cracks the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in ways you have never heard before. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to spend this time studying your word once again. We thank you for the many times that we've been able to do so over the past month and we pray once again for the presence of your Holy Spirit. We pray once again that you'll surround us with your holy angels. We pray once again that you'll come into our hearts, that you'll guide us in our study of your word, that you will make it clear in our minds, that you'll help us to understand what you are saying to us. But above everything else, we pray that you will be uplifted and that we will be drawn closer to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most ancient symbols of the mystery religions of the past was the symbol of the serpent. Now, if you look at the symbol of the serpent here or the hieroglyph of the serpent, you'll find that the ancients used it to symbolize a number of different things. It symbolized secret wisdom through divination, the sacred feminine and fertility. It was a gateway, and often you would find serpents used as gateways to the mystery religion. It symbolized pharmakia and medicine. It symbolized the 666 of the Babylonian zodiac. And if you look at the hieroglyph right here, you actually see the number six right there within the hieroglyph, don't you? And it was a symbol of the ancient Luciferian cults. Now you ask, well, why would the serpent be a symbol of the Luciferian cults? And here, of course, you find an Egyptian one and they were... A very common uh, symbol throughout Egypt and throughout the ancient world. You find the serpent on the forehead of Pharaoh right here. Here you find two serpents together. Well, why is it that you would find that the serpent would be a symbol of Luciferian cults, the worship of Satan? Why would that be? And why is it so far spread all around the world wherever you go? Well, the answer is very, very simple, of course. If you look at this one here... This particular one is a winged serpent, a snake with wings. Why would a snake have wings? Where would you get that idea or that concept from? Has anybody ever seen a snake with wings? No, we've never seen one of those, have we? So where would that idea originate? It originates with an angel. Now, angels have wings, isn't that so? An angel who is also referred to as a serpent. Was there one of those? Yes, indeed there was. And what was his name? Lucifer. Exactly. And so you'll find that you'll often find the serpent depicted not just with wings, but also in conjunction with either an angel or with wings himself. Look at this. You find the winged serpent right here. The only place that you will find the winged serpent, the only reason that you'll find the reason for having a serpent with wings is to identify it as Lucifer himself. And of course, here you find it right here. In fact, it's a very common symbol that you find popping up in Christianity all over the place, this winged serpent. You wonder, here he is right here. You see that with his wings? Why would this be? Now, another version of it, of course, is this one here. You have two rising serpents beneath uh, two wings at the top, and that's a common symbol today, isn't it? What do we use that as a symbol of? Medicine. Yeah, that's right. It's interesting where it comes from. Very, very ancient symbol goes back a long, long way. I found this one interesting. This was Pope Sixtus. There have been six popes who have taken the name Six. And if you look at his, uh, his tiara, you have um, six rising serpents beneath an Egyptian pyramid. You sort of wonder what this guy was into, eh? 
that uh, he would have this on his sarcophagus. Now, of course, you have the uh, crozier, which all of the popes carry, which is always in the form of a serpent. And here you have the serpent croziers. And sometimes you find those with wings as well. You notice that this one here has wings as well. So it's interesting where you see this popping up. And, of course, there is the, uh, the ancient um, Greek and Roman croziers. Um, this symbol has been around for a long, long time. And it has always symbolized the same thing, the symbol of the serpent, which leads us to tonight's subject. I nearly took you one slide too far. Let's do a review of last night's subject. Let's turn our Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. If the serpent is a symbol of divination, of being able to understand the future, do you think that Satan is a reliable source of information for the future? No, we would not say that Satan or Lucifer is a reliable source of information for the future. Revelation chapter 12. The Bible speaks about the great dragon, the great serpent, Satan. And here the Bible speaks about the serpent in conjunction with the woman. We studied the subject of the woman last night. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9, the Bible says, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And so here we find the answer. The serpent is a symbol of Satan. He is an angel. He was cast out to this earth. We've looked at the history of how that happened and why that happened already. Now, When we study this particular chapter, we find that the serpent is in conflict with the woman. And we find the symbol of the woman in three stages. You remember this from last night. You find the three stages of the church. In the first stage, Revelation 12 and verse 1, there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. So from last night, what does the woman symbolize? A church. This is a pure woman. Therefore, we have whose church? God's church. And we have God's church at the beginning with 12 stars or 12 leaders at its head. When did God's church have 12 leaders at its head? In the time of Jesus and the apostles. That's right. Then we come down a little bit and the Bible says in verse 6 that the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared of God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Now we've studied this time period beginning in 538, extending to the year 1798, covering the period of the Dark Ages, taking you from ancient history through medieval history and launching you into modern history. So the Bible divides it up like that and we find that the church would be in the wilderness during that time period. We find that people who believed in the word of God during this time period, people who followed this book right here, lived in the wilderness out of necessity because if they lived anywhere else, their lives were on the line. Tremendous amount of people lost their lives during that time period. Well, then we continue on from there. We go down to the end of the chapter. In fact, Um, we find in verse 14 that she comes out of the wilderness. And in verse 17, the Bible goes on and describes the woman again. The dragon was wroth with the woman, went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
So the Bible is absolutely clear right here. It speaks about the remnant. The word remnant means that which remains, and it gives us two unequivocal identifying characteristics that the remnant, God's church remaining at the end of time, must have. And here they are. The Bible says they must keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. So the question that we ask ourselves right here is this. What is the testimony of Jesus? We are all very, very familiar with what the commandments are, isn't that so? That's the Ten Commandments. Well, what about the testimony of Jesus? What is the testimony of Jesus? Now, I don't know about you, but there's been many times when I've heard somebody share a testimony, and I always look forward to hearing a testimony, don't you? I always know that when somebody's going to stand up and share their testimony, I'm going to receive a blessing. Now, what about the testimony of Jesus? Do you think there would be a blessing there? Oh, yeah, there's going to be a blessing there, isn't there? A very, very special blessing for all of us. So we've got to find out what is this testimony of Jesus? How is it? By what means does Jesus share his story with us? The answer is found in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10. We, here we have the Apostle John who has been overcome in vision by the amazing things that he has been seeing. And as he has been overcome by these amazing things that he's been seeing, he tries to worship the angel. Verse 10, it says, I fell at his, that's the angel's feet, to worship him. And he said to me, see you do it not. Should we worship angels? No, because they're created beings like us. He says, see you do it not. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren that have what? The testimony of Jesus. Who has the testimony of Jesus in this passage? The brethren have the testimony of Jesus, right? Okay, hold that thought. We're going to come back to it. I am, I am your fellow servant and of your brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is what? The spirit of prophecy. So when the Bible says the testimony of Jesus is, it's giving you a definition, isn't that so? It tells us it is the spirit of prophecy. Now I would say that would be a rather different kind of way of being able to understand the future than through the power of the serpent, wouldn't you? Yes, indeed. So the next question that follows from that, we have to ask ourselves, is this. The Bible says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So what then is the spirit of prophecy? Now we have two different options that we can choose from the Bible. Number one, it could be the gift and the ability to be able to teach the prophecies of the Bible. Isn't that so? Could be that. On the other hand, it could be the gift of prophecy given to a prophet. So we need to find out which one of the two it is. If it's, the, it's, if it's the ability to be able to explain the prophecies of the Bible, then I have it. But on the other hand, if it is the gift of prophecy, then I don't have it because I'm not a prophet. So let's find out what does the Bible say. Now, who did the Bible say in this passage has the testimony of Jesus? Who has it? The brethren have the testimony of Jesus. So the way we answer this question is by finding out how the testimony of Jesus is manifest. Is the testimony of Jesus manifest in people who are teachers? Or is it manifest in people who are prophets? Revelation chapter 22, and we'll read from verse 9, where we find that John was a bit of a slow learner. He tries to worship the angel again. In verse 9, then said he, the angel, unto me, See you do it not. 
Don't worship me. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the what? The what? The prophets of your brethren, the prophets. So who is it that has the testimony of Jesus then? The prophets, the testimony of Jesus, the spirit of prophecy is not manifest amongst the teachers. It is manifest amongst the prophets. It is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's one of the most important gifts of the Holy Spirit. So let's throw a few things up on the screen here as we work our way through this. The Bible says that the testimony of Jesus is a gift. Let's look at this in another passage of the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The testimony of Jesus is the gift of prophecy. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And let's read verse 6. This is page 460. Page 460, it says, Even as the testimony of Christ, or the testimony of Jesus, was confirmed in you so that you come behind in no what? Gift. This is one of the gifts of the Spirit. Now, the Bible speaks about a whole lot of different gifts of the Spirit. I don't have time this evening to talk about all the different gifts of the Spirit that there are, but there are many of them. They are all valid. They are all given to God's church. You'll find a number of places in the Bible where they are listed, and they are given to God's church for the purpose of strengthening, building up, and edifying His church. So to look at that, we'll turn over in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and this is one of the places where you'll find some of the gifts listed. And it will answer some questions for us in relationship to the gifts. Ephesians chapter 4, you'll find this on page 472, 73. We'll start reading in verse 11. Ephesians 4 and verse 11. It begins by saying this, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and some teachers. Before we go any further, let me ask you a question. Does he give everybody the same gift? No, he gives everybody different gifts. And these are some of the gifts that he gives right here. So we have a whole bunch of different gifts that are listed. Then it goes on, What are the different gifts given for? Why does God give these different gifts? The answer is found in verse 12. It begins with the word for. It's going to tell us the purpose. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying or building up of the body of Christ. Do you know who the saints are when the Bible speaks about the saints? Yeah, that's right. Anybody who asks Jesus into their heart in the Bible is a saint. You don't have to go through a beatification process to become a saint. All you need to do is give your life to Jesus and Jesus says, you are a saint. And so this is what the gifts are given for. All right, how long were these gifts to remain in God's church? Verse 13, were they ever to be taken away? Verse 13 begins with the word till or until. So it's now going to tell us for how long. Until, the Bible says, we come in the unity of the faith under the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Is there anybody here who has attained that? I'm glad nobody put up your hand, because if you put up your hand, I would say, well, why did you just blow it? You see? No. The Bible is telling us very plainly and very clearly right here, that the gifts of the Spirit were given to God's church to be with God's church right down through until the end of time. 
Now, the gift of prophecy then becomes an interesting gift because we ask ourselves the question, why did it disappear during the Dark Ages? We know it hasn't been here all the way through. So why did it disappear? We're going to come back to that question in just a moment and we're going to answer that question. We're going to find out the reason that the Bible gives. The Bible gives a very clear reason. But before we do, while we're considering the different gifts, let's think about them in their uh, area of importance, shall we? And the gifts of the Bible, the gift of the prophecy, is mentioned 530 times in the Bible. That's a lot of emphasis on that gift, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely so. What about some of the other gifts? I don't have them all listed here. I just did a little bit of research and put a few of them up. Uh, The gift of teaching is mentioned 268 times in the Bible. Pastors, elders and bishops, those three words actually all mean the same thing in the Bible. They're mentioned 200 times. Um, Apostles are mentioned 82 and some of you might be interested to know that the gift of tongues is mentioned in five different places in the Bible. Which makes me wonder sometimes whether in some areas of Christianity that's a little bit out of balance. It's a question worth asking, isn't it? But that's not our subject for this evening. We need to move on and ask ourselves, why was it then that the gift of prophecy disappeared during the Dark Ages? Well, as we consider this for a moment, I'm going to share with you a principle of the Bible. And this principle of the Bible is a principle that is called the law and the prophets. Let's begin in Jeremiah chapter 26. Jeremiah chapter 26. What we're going to look at is two things that always go hand in hand in the Bible. Jeremiah chapter 26, that's page 318. And the principle works fairly simply like this. God has given us His law, the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments are very simple, aren't they? That's the wonderful thing about God's law. You know, if we were to look at the laws of Australia and print them all out, they would probably fill this room, wouldn't they? When God gives His law, He makes it so simple, so easy to understand, just Ten Commandments. He says, okay, I've given you a very simple law here, Ten Commandments. He said, this is very easy and straightforward. Um, and very easy to understand. He said, and the principle goes like this. If you can't follow the law, which is simple, then what's the point in giving, me a whole, giving you a whole bunch of extra information through the gift of prophecy? Does that make sense? Why, why would God do that if we're not dealing with the basics first? It's, it's like, okay, deal with this and I will give you then all of the extra. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 26. Let's look at it here. Verse 4, the Bible says, uh, And you shall say unto them, Thus says the Lord, If you will not listen to me, to walk in my law which I have set before you, to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I sent unto you, both rising up early and sending them, but you've not listened, then I'll make this house like Shiloh, and I'll make this city a curse to all the nations that are in the earth. Notice two things that are the condition of prosperity for God's people that go together. Number one, the law. Number two, the prophets. So let's put these up on the screen. The condition for the prosperity of God's people at this particular time was two things, the law and the prophets. Well, did they listen to what Jeremiah had to say? 
No, they didn't, unfortunately. And so did God destroy their city? Yes, he did destroy their city. And did Jeremiah, was he upset about that? Yes, he was. He wrote another book. It's called Lamentations. It's the next book of the Bible. And it's a small one. If you go to Ezekiel, you've gone too far. Lamentations chapter 2, page 334. And here in verse 9 it says this, Her gates are sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the Gentiles. The law is no more. Her prophets also find no vision of the Lord. Notice what happens right here. The law was done away with. They'd said, no, we don't need to hear the law of God anymore. They'd done away with the law of God. What had happened, the city had been destroyed and was God speaking to them through his prophets? No, he wasn't. He says the prophets... Find no vision from the Lord. Ezekiel was there at that particular time. And Ezekiel had a similar experience. If we go to Ezekiel um, chapter 7, that's page 280. Ezekiel chapter 7, page 280. Verse 26 says this, Mischief shall come upon mischief and rumour shall be upon rumour. Then shall they seek a vision of the prophet. But what's the problem? The law shall perish from the priest and counsel from the ancient. So they're like saying, well, we want a vision from the prophet, but the law isn't there. You see? So God isn't going to speak to them. Let's continue on in the book of Ezekiel. Let's go over to uh, Ezekiel chapter 20, page 344. Ezekiel chapter 20, page 344. And here God becomes even more plain because they come to God and they want advice from God. They want God to speak to them. And in verse 3, God says, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say unto them, Thus says the Lord God, Are you come to inquire of me as I live, says the Lord God? I will not be inquired of by you. That's pretty plain, isn't it? They come to Ezekiel. That you're the prophet, ask God to tell us what to do in this situation right here. And what does God say? God says, don't tell them a thing. I'm not, I have nothing to say to you. Why doesn't God have anything to say to them? Because they were doing exactly the same as what God's people had done in the past. The answer is found down in verse 13, where it says, but the house of Israel rebelled against me. In the wilderness they walk not in my statutes, they despise my judgments, which if a man do them, even he shall live in them. My Sabbaths they greatly polluted. Then I said, I will pour out my fury upon them in the wilderness to consume them. So notice what happens wherever we go in the Bible, and you can find this, uh, we can find instance after in all the way through the Bible, you'll find instances of the law and the prophets, these two things that go together. You do away with the law, the gift of prophecy disappears with it. One more from Proverbs. Look at one more from the book of Proverbs just to illustrate this one last time. Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 18. Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 18 where it says this. In verse 18 it says, Where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keeps the law, happy is he. Why? Because when you have the law of God, you also have the vision of the prophets going along with it. So the vision and the law goes together. 
So this begins to answer for us one of the questions that we were looking, continuing on from last night as to why there are so many churches in the world. If we look back over the history of the last 2,000 years, we find that after the time of Christ, there was a decline of truth in the world. And let's look at it very simply right here. A decline of truth. We have the apostolic church over here. The woman in white, she has all the spiritual gifts. But not long after Jesus left, there was a movement to do away with the law of God, to get rid of the law of God. The Sabbath was replaced by Sunday, amongst other things. When the law of God was done away with, the gift of prophecy was done away with, just as it happened in the Bible. Sunday became in place of Sabbath. Then you had this decline that went down here. The, um, the immortality of the soul came in. Sprinkling came in. We could list a whole bunch of things as it declined down here to the beginning of the 1260 years while the woman is in the wilderness. But then you have the reverse taking place at the other end. And it's interesting how God brought back and re-established truth to the world in stages. Well, why would God do it in stages? The answer is very simple. Let's say that we were all here and in this room and the electricity went out and it went dark. And for the next hour, it was completely dark here in this room. Suddenly the electricity came back on and when it came back on, you were staring straight at those floodlights up there. What would you do? Whoo, wouldn't you? So God brings it back on gently so that he doesn't turn people away from the light that he is bringing. The problem is that God, as God brings it back on gently, there is a principle in the Bible, and that principle is that truth is progressive. Isn't that so? We're going to talk more about that in the second presentation. Truth is progressive, and some people refused to progress with the truth, and as a result, they stopped where they were didn't go any further, left their church right here and God raised another one and then another one as you come on all the way down through. And so we have this rise of truth as we come through to the end of time. It comes back up this way. When you come down to the remnant of the woman, what does the Bible say in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17? Revelation chapter 12, let's read it again. The Bible says, And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which do what? They keep the commandments of God. So what has been restored here in this verse? The law of God has been restored. Therefore, what would we expect to be restored along with the law of God? The spirit of prophecy, the gift of prophecy. Isn't that so? Yeah, that's what we would expect. And that's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible teaches right here. Now, of course, when we look at the Bible, this is what we should expect to take place. You see, when we look at how God works, and it's interesting to consider how God works down through history because God has a method, isn't that so? God's method doesn't change, does it? No, it doesn't change. When God is going to do something big in the world, let's think about a few of them. Maybe the flood. Did God send a prophet to guide his people before the time of the flood? Who was that? Noah. Did God send a prophet to guide his people at the time of the Exodus? Who was that? Moses. Did God send a prophet to guide his people at the time of the Babylonian invasion? Yes. Who were they? Daniel. Ah, oh, yeah, well, 
Daniel, Hananiah, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, those guys. Um, but more specifically, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Okay? Uh, what about the first time that Jesus came to this earth? Did God's, was that a big event? Did God send a prophet to guide his people through that event? Yes. Who was that? John the Baptist. And so we could go on and on and on down through history. When God is about to do something big, what does he do? He sends a prophet with a lifetime calling of prophecy, the gift of prophecy to guide his people through that event. In the Bible, what is the biggest event that our earth will ever see? The second coming, the return of Christ. Would we then assume that God would do the same thing? Yes, you would. In fact, it would be most unusual if God did not restore the gift of prophecy again just before his return. Isn't that so? That's well worth thinking about. While we're thinking about that, some people ask me the question, and I'll answer this question before I go on because it's a very valid one, are there different kinds of prophets in the Bible? And the answer to that question is yes. Let's turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 29. You might find this interesting. 1 Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 29. 1 Chronicles, that's page 177. So for those of you who were looking in Corinthians, you'll now have to go the other direction. 1 Chronicles, chapter 29 and verse 29. Here the Bible says, Now the acts of David the king, first and last, behold, they are written in the book of Samuel the prophet. Do we have that book in our Bible? Yes, First and Second Samuel. It goes on and in the book of Nathan the prophet, and in the book of Gad the prophet. So here's what I want you to do now. I want everybody to turn their Bibles to the book of Gad. Oh, I didn't catch anyone out. I usually have someone who suddenly starts going like this, or they go to the beginning. No, you don't find the book of Gad. What about the book of Nathan? No, that's right. So you have two different kinds of prophets in the Bible, and we call them this. Canonical prophets and non-canonical prophets. The canon of Scripture means the rule of Scripture, not the big gun. You understand the difference? Okay. And very simply, the difference between canonical prophets and non-canonical prophets is that a canonical prophet writes for all time, therefore his works are placed in the book that is written for all time, that is the Bible. A non-canonical prophet writes for his time, therefore his works aren't placed in the book that is for all all time. You see the difference between the two? One deals with uh, local information. That's not relevant to us today, but of course, First and Second Samuel, are they relevant to us today? Oh, absolutely they are. And what a blessing they are to have those books in the Bible. Okay, so let's look at some other things in relationship to God's method in dealing with the gift of prophecy. And this time we'll look at it in relationship to time prophecy. How does God deal with with time prophecy. I'll give you some examples here. God's method with time prophecy. Here we have Genesis chapter 15, verse 13 and 14. You have a prophecy that is given to Abraham. It is a time prophecy that the Israelite people would be in Egyptian captivity for 400 years. Then you have at the end of that prophecy, Moses gives prophetic guidance at the fulfillment of the prophecy, doesn't he? So here's how God works with time prophecy. You have one prophet who initiates the prophecy and then you have another prophet who gives guidance at the end of that prophecy. Let's look at a couple of other examples. 
Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 10, you have a prophecy given to Jeremiah. This time you have 70 years of Babylonian captivity. Who comes at the end of that one? Haggai and Zechariah give prophetic guidance at the fulfillment or the end of that particular time prophecy. And another one. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 25, you have a prophecy that is given to Daniel that there would be 490 years of Jewish probation, 483 years through to the Messiah. And who gives prophetic guidance at the end of that one? John the Baptist gives prophetic guidance at the end of that one. Do you all start to see how it works? You have a prophet at either end, don't you? Well, this becomes even more interesting when we put it into the context of our time because some of the prophecies stretch down to our time, don't they? Let's consider Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14. You have a prophecy given to Daniel. He initiates the prophecy. You have 2,300 years until the judgment. Well, when did that one end? Who remembers? 1844, that brings it down into modern times, doesn't it? So who gives prophetic guidance at the end of that one? So here's what we have coming together. We have a number of things coming together right here. 1844, we know that we are living in the time of the end. Jesus is coming back soon. The signs of the times are increasing in severity and closeness together and all taking place simultaneously for the first time in history. There is a momentum that begins to take place as we near the end of time. Not only that, the 2300, the 2300 day prophecy is coming to an end. Not only that, we have the law of God being reestablished in the earth. It has been lost through the dark ages. So we have a whole bunch of things coming together. We have the return of Jesus about to take place. Everything points to the fact that God is going to restore the gift of prophecy just as he said he would. The dragon was wroth with the woman went to make war with the remnant of her seed who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. So the question that then comes up is this, well, who gives prophetic guidance at the end of that prophecy? That's a pretty fair question. All right, we've got a number of different um, options that we could take. We could suggest Joseph Smith, who died as an alcoholic um, at the hands of a, a violent mob. No, the Bible says, by their fruits you shall know them. And of course, promoted polygamy and a number of other different strange ideas. We could suggest Andrew Jackson Davis, who was a spiritualist. He was in communication with Lucifer. Should we trust him? No. Then we might suggest C.T. Russell, who taught that Jesus was not a part of the Godhead, that he was not God, that he was less than God. Should we trust what he has to say? No. Uh, then we could try Mary Baker Eddy, who specifically taught that hygiene in the use, in the practice of medicine was a deception of Satan. Does that sound like a good idea? You'd like to go to hospital and the doctor doesn't wash his hands from the last patient? No. Uh, we have Edgar Casey. Once again, he was a spiritualist, somebody who is in communication with Lucifer himself. Should we suggest this guy? No. We run through our list here and none of these guys are going to stack up. I'm going to suggest somebody to you this evening. Her name was Ellen White. Now you might say, well, that's a fairly bold and large claim to make and it is a fairly bold and large claim to make and I'm not asking anybody here to, to sit here this evening and say, oh, I believe that Ellen White is a prophet. But I do say this, it is worth investigating whether she had the gift of prophecy or not. 
Her prophetic ministry began in the year 1844. Now, one of the things that we need to be very aware of We live in a world where there are a multitude of people who claim to have the gift of prophecy, don't we? Yeah? We are surrounded by lots of people who claim to have the gift of prophecy. Should we just accept at face value anyone who comes along and says, I'm a prophet? No. The Bible says that we should test them. And when it comes to the gift of prophecy being the most important gift that there is in the Bible, the Bible gives it the highest the highest standard of tests. In fact, there are a whole bunch of different ones when we look at Scripture. So let's turn in our Bibles and let's look at what the Bible has to say about the tests of a prophet. And you have to apply this one to anyone, any claim to the gift of prophecy. And so we begin in Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8, page 280. Isaiah chapter 8. These are important. In verse 20, the Bible says this, to the law and to the testimony. Two things right there. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. What is the law of God? What do we call that? Ten commandments. What is the testimony of Jesus? The writings of the prophets that we have here. In other words... If they do not uphold the law of God, the Ten Commandments, and if they do not abide by the Word of God, the Scriptures, then the Bible says don't have anything to do with them. And in fact, if any, you come across anywhere where you find somewhere where they say, contradict the Bible, that's it. They are not a true prophet, plain and simple. All right. So they must follow and promote Scripture They must keep and promote the law of God. If they do not do these two things here, they're a false prophet. It's as simple as that. And the Bible says this in Matthew chapter 24. It says it four times. At the end of time, beware of false prophets. Isn't that so? Yeah, which in itself is an indication that the gift of prophecy returns. It says beware of false prophets. Well, let's look at another one. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 28. And this one's the obvious one, of course. Jeremiah chapter 28. And you'll find this on about page 320. Jeremiah chapter 28 and verse 9. It simply says, The prophet which prophesies of peace, when the word of the prophet shall come to pass, then shall the prophet be known that the Lord has sent him. What's the test right here? His prophecies have to be fulfilled. If he gives a prophecy and it's not fulfilled, you've got all kinds of strife. Isn't that so? It has to be 100% accurate. And when I say 100%, I mean 100% accurate. The slightest deviation from this and you're dealing with a false prophet. That's a rather high standard, isn't that so? But does God make mistakes? No, God doesn't make mistakes. And so often I think that we start to look at the, at the uh, instrument that God uses, which is always a mistake, rather than the author of the gift. Okay, let's look at another one. Matthew. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And this one should be an obvious one as well. Matthew chapter 7. And 
It's a very simple verse. In verse 20, this is page 393. Matthew chapter 7, in verse 20, the Bible says, Wherefore, by their what? By their fruits you shall know them. What does it mean when it says, by their fruits? It means what are the fruit? What is the fruit of their life? What has their life accomplished? Are they living a holy life, a righteous life? Are they living after the example of Jesus? Or is this a truly, you know, messed up person who is doing some terrible things? The Bible says that here we need to become fruit inspectors when it comes to anybody who claims to have the gift of prophecy. All right, let's continue on. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18, we find another one over here. In fact, you find this in a number of different places in the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 18. And we'll find this in verse 9. And it says, When you are come into the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to do after the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone that makes his son or his daughter to pass through the fire or that uses divination or an observer of times or an enchanter or a witch or a charmer or a consulter with familiar spirits or a wizard or a necromancer. For all the do these things are an abomination unto the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God does drive them out from before you. That's strong language, isn't it? The Bible lists here a whole bunch of different ways that people today claim to be able to know the future. People who watch Times, numerologists, people who read tarot cards, people who are in communication with the dead. I'll put it up there as a summary right there. The Bible says all these things are an abomination to God. And if they are claiming to be in communication with the dead in any way, shape or form, they are a false prophet. Let's go to um, 1 John for our last one. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 3 where the Bible says simply, And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. This is that spirit of Antichrist whereof you have heard that it should come and even now already is in the world. And so here we have a list. The Bible says that anyone who claims that Jesus did not come in the flesh is not a true prophet. And so we have a list here. The Bible sets a high standard, doesn't it? Of anybody who claims to have this gift. And of course, when we come to any situation like this, we have people who say, well, I'm going to do some investigation. I think that's a wise thing to do with anyone who claims to have the gift of prophecy, don't you? We should make a list of the tests and put them to that list of tests right there. Some people ask me the question, they say, well, you know, who was Ellen White? Um, Ellen White was... um, Involved in the founding of the Adventist Church. He wasn't the founder. The church was founded by James White, her husband, and Joseph Bates. Um, She was somebody that I believe had the gift of prophecy. She had a prophetic ministry that lasted about 70 years. During that time, she had many visions. Um, She was, I think, the fourth most prolific female writer of all time and has written a tremendous amount of material that's out there. I would highly recommend any of her books 
If you have never read any of her books, talk to Don or Marcus, and I'm sure they would be happy to provide you with one. In fact, I think they already did, didn't they? Go home and read what she actually said. It's wonderful material. Once again, I don't stand here and say, well, you know, you need to accept everything she said. And by the way, some people ask, well, does she have detractors? And yes, there are people who are detractors. Let me ask this. Are there people who are detractors from the Bible? Yep, absolutely. In fact, you can claim all kinds of different things about the Bible if you take it out of context, can't you? You ever heard about the, the man who, who, was, who was looking for guidance in his life and he's like, okay, I'm going to find guidance in the Bible. So he opened his Bible and, 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 and pointed his finger and read the verse and it said Judas went and hanged himself. <laughs> he's going, oh, that's kind of bad. It's like, oh, I'll try again, I'll try again, I'll try again. So he opens it to a different place, he points his finger and reads, go and do thou likewise. <laughs> And he's thinking, this is getting even worse. So he tries one third time, closes his eyes and points his finger and reads, what you do, do quickly. <laughs> if you take one passage from here, another from here, another from here, take it out of its context, you can prove whatever you want from Scripture. That's a dangerous thing. You can do exactly the same thing with on white. However, I've never seen any claim yet that has stood up to the examination of placing it in its context. Simply look at it in its context and the answer is there. Exactly the same with the Bible. Does the Bible teach that we should all go out and quickly kill ourselves? No, of course it doesn't. We know that to be the case. Now, some people ask me the question, well, what were some of the things that Ellen White spoke about? And I have just a very few minutes left, so I will share some of them with you here this evening. In relationship to the Bible, she said this. She said, in our time, there is a wide departure from there. This is the Protestant reformers, Martin Luther and those guys. From their doctrines and precepts, and there is a need of a return to the great Protestant principle, the Bible and the Bible only as the rule of faith and duty. That's why when I come here, this is the only thing that I preach from, isn't that so? The Bible and the Bible, I haven't given you anything else. And I like what she says there. I agree with that, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Puts it in good context. In relationship to Jesus, she said this, lift up Jesus, you that teach the people, lift him up in sermon, in song, in prayer. Let all your powers be directed in pointing souls, confused, bewildered, lost to the Lamb of God. Where should we be looking, friends? To Jesus Christ. Absolutely. That's where our attention needs to be. Well, what else did she have to say? In relationship to health, she spoke about electrical currents back in the brain back in 1869, which wasn't confirmed until 1934. She spoke extensively about health, actually. In 1864, she spoke about tobacco as a poison of the most deceitful and malignant kind. And, of course, I found this interesting. More doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette. You wouldn't see that advertisement today, would you? Have things changed a bit? It wasn't until 100 years later that the Surgeon General of the United States actually came out and said that smoking was dangerous. But we all know it's dangerous now, don't we? Indeed. Uh, This was an interesting one. I'll read this one. When I was last in New York, I was in the night season, called upon to behold buildings rising story after story toward heaven. In them, the most costly material was used. Of course, this was before the invention of the skyscraper. The scene that next passed before me was an alarm of fire, but these buildings were consumed as if made of pitch. The fire engines could do nothing to stay the destruction. The firemen were unable to operate the engines. In the night I was, I thought, in a room, but not my own room. I was in a city. I heard explosion after explosion. I rose up quickly in bed and saw from my window large balls of fire jetting out were sparks in the 
form of arrows. And buildings were being consumed. And in a very few minutes, the entire block of buildings was falling. And the screeching and mournful groans came distinctly to my ears. Well, most of us have seen that on television, haven't we? And there's the description of it written a hundred years before the event about the United States. She said the United States would be the last superpower and the United States would be involved in doing away with its own constitution. And here we find the evidence over and over again that the United States is just doing that. She said way back in the 1800s, Catholicism is gaining ground in our country on every side. And even when you come down to 1960, this was back in the time, of course, when the United States had cut diplomatic ties with the Vatican because the Vatican was writing errors and encyclical letters against their constitution. Have things changed a little bit since then? Oh, they have changed dramatically since then. She spoke about the United States as being the last superpower of them reaching across the gulf to grasp the hands of spiritualism. This is from the uh, Bakersfield, California newspaper. And to reach over the abyss to clasp hands with the Roman power. And there we see it happening right there. She talked about the separation of church and state being annulled. That our country shall repudiate every principle of its constitution as a Protestant and Republican government. And what do we find? That exact thing taking place right here where we find prophecies from a false prophet like this who says, thus says the Lord, I'll tear down the separation between church and state and use miracles to do it. Straight out of... Revelation chapter 13, she spoke about the condition of the church. Way back in 1900, she said, the things you have described as taking place in Indiana, the Lord has shown me, would take place just before the close of probation. Every uncouth thing will be demonstrated. They'll be shouting with drums and dancing. The senses of rational beings will become so confused that they cannot be trusted to make right decisions. And this is called the moving of the Holy Spirit. That kind of worship did not exist back then. But if you wanted to see it today, all you need to do is switch your television on early on a Sunday morning and you will find it happening all over the world now. What else did she talk about? The rise of disease in animals back in 1902. Do we have a rise of disease in animals today? Yes, going, but every time, every year, there's another flu that's named after another animal, so to speak. Back in 1864, she spoke about the base crime of amalgamation of man and beast, and people scoffed about this for decades. And, of course, that's what we do right now. This was an interesting experiment right here where, uh, oh, I've probably got a little bit on this. Scientists injected human brain cells into mouse fetuses, creating a strain of mice that were were 1% human. Weissman is considering a follow-up that would produce mice whose brains are 100% human. What he was doing, he was putting building mice on human DNA. And to do 1% human DNA as to 100%, there's no difference in the procedure, no difference in the level of difficulty. It was just seen as being something that would be politically incorrect to do. But then he proposed, went on to propose this. If you were to make mice that had human DNA... And then you were to bring two reproductive cells together from each of those mice and have create a test tube baby and implant it into a woman. She would give birth to a normal human child because with that DNA you can't have any other kind of child whose biological parents were mice. That's pretty sick. Tell you what, it tells us that Jesus is coming back soon, doesn't it? When those kind of things start to take place, well, a couple more statements to finish off. thought you might have found some of these interesting. In relationship to the Bible, she says this, Antichrist is to perform his marvellous works in our sight. 
So closely will the counterfeit resemble the true that it will be impossible to distinguish between them except by the Holy Scriptures, by their testimony. Whose testimony? The testimony of Scriptures, every statement and every miracle must be tested. Is that true? Yes, indeed it is. And then speaking of Nicodemus, she said there are thousands today who need to learn the same truth that was taught to Nicodemus by the uplifted serpent. When they are bidden to look to Jesus and believes that he saves and believe that he saves them solely through his grace, they exclaim, how can these things be? Let me ask you friends, does Jesus save us solely through his grace? Is there any other way of salvation other than by the grace of God? Absolutely not, my friends. This is the only way. And this is what Ellen White directs us to. She directs us to Jesus Christ. This is who I direct you to this evening. Jesus Christ, because he is the only one who saves us by his grace. How many of you want to experience that grace in your lives? I know that I do. Praise God, friends. God is so good. Let's bow our heads as we close with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the privilege that it is to experience the power of your grace in our lives. And now as we take a moment to move from this building, to go to a place where we witness the power of your grace, how it has worked in the life of one of the people right here, we pray that your Holy Spirit will continue to attend us, continue to bless us as we move to this baptism now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. been listening to an M24 media production of The Prophetic Code by speaker-presenter Lyle Southwell. For more information, visit knowthecode.global or call 3ABN Australia Radio on 02-4973-3456.
You heard Rob and Gilly play Rain in Me and He is Lord from the album Be Still.